You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're on 3CR Community Radio. This is Tuesday breakfast. The time is 7 a.m. on the 23rd of February. Uh, it's me, Genevieve, and I'm joined by my co-presenter, George. Hi, George. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, good, good. How are you? Good. Good? It's sleepy. Yeah, I'm a bit sleepy today <laughs> yeah. as well. I'm noticing that we're running more and more out of daylight as well, so I woke up and it was like so so dark yeah. this time i saw people running i i just i don't think i just can understand running in any context but on my way here i saw people running in the rain oh god <laughs> that's terrible like, you have very different lifestyles i yeah. can't quite grasp it yeah i know i've i've done a short stint of trying to get up early and go for a run um but mostly like your muscles are way too stiff to even like do any sort of coordinated yeah. movements. Yeah. It's just not, yeah. yeah. I'm, it's unnatural. But yeah, it's unnatural. <laughs> no, I respect if you're listening and you ran this morning, I have a lot of respect for you. Well done. I'm just jealous <laughs> that I'm not able to do that yeah, myself, really. I'm <laughs> smiling at you from my car. <laughs> um, all right. So our show this morning. Yeah, we've got quite a quite a big show this morning. I'll yeah. run through... Um, first I'll do a bit of the weather, speaking of True. running in the rain, because yeah. it was pretty <laughs> terrible this morning. Um, it's going to be pretty cold today, top of 18, um, low of 11. Uh, at the moment it's 13 degrees. This is one of the coldest days I reckon we've had in a while, but partly cloudy, so take your winds. Summer. Summer, yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Lauren very unfortunately couldn't be... Here in the studio this morning, but of course, organised as she is, has prepared a very interesting interview for us. So we'll play that after our news chat. And there has been a lot going on in the news in the last week. Yeah, so much um, in the news, so much to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of interviews coming up after that. Uh, firstly, I'll be interviewing Mac Zamani, who is a trans 17 year old. Um, who was also a part of the study uh, uh, by the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society by La Trobe University uh, called Writing Themselves in Four. Um, he was a study participant and we're just going to be talking about his experience as a young trans person and also his involvement in that report. And then cool. um, I've also got another very special guest, uh, Roberta Joy Rich, uh, who is a writer, multidisciplinary artist, uh, 
like literally uses every form of artistry I can ever think of. It's absolutely amazing. But um, her work, we're just going to be talking about her art, her work, what she's working on at the moment, um, what inspires her. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, stick with us because we've got a lot happening this morning. It's now or never for climate action. So join the National Sustainable Living Festival this February for a program showcasing cutting-edge solutions to the ecological and social challenges of our times. Be part of the change and join the sustainability movement with a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. It's time to reset to climate safe. For the full program, go to slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Jen and George. We're going to take you through some news headlines now, starting with, and I, I really wish Lauren was here right now because I think she would be able to really contextualise it very well for us, but this is an issue. It's not it's not the extremely news. This is from four days ago, uh, but the family court being abolished, and at Tuesday Breakfast we cover a lot of family violence um, topics. This is a, a, an issue that is extremely important to us, so this is very devastating news. So the government passing legislation to merge the family court into another court. The move was opposed by Labor and some within the legal profession. Former judges say they do not think it will make the system more efficient. And I think even if you're not a lawyer, you can you can kind of work out that this mm. doesn't make much sense. Yeah, huh? definitely. Kind of like jostling in all the work into one sector yeah. seems... Uh, pretty ignorant of how important the family court yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. We need we need specialized services. We need lawyers who have mm. an understanding of what family violence is. We need courts that, you know, and it's not a perfect system and we talk about abolition a lot as well here, but yeah. we definitely don't want to take steps backwards for and sure. have less access uh, for people experiencing family violence. Yeah. And at a time in co- like COVID, if any, if anything has made us realise about how important support for um, victims of family violence um, is, it would be COVID. And have we learnt nothing? Yeah. 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 Um, totally. Very, very disappointing. Yeah, definitely. Um, in other news, I'm sure that our listeners have heard. Um, staffer Brittany Higgins, uh, has, uh, her, sorry, uh, this story obviously talks about sexual violence, um, and rape, just giving a bit of a trigger warning beforehand. Um, uh, Brittany Higgins, uh, came forward uh, about allegations that a federal government staffer, um, sorry, she was a federal government staffer, um, who was raped in a minister's office. Uh, news.com.au has reported that a man working for the then defence industry, Minister Linda Reynolds, took a 24-year-old female media staffer into Parliament House after a Friday night drinking session. This is in March 2019 and allegedly raped her inside the defence industry's minister's office. Now, there's been a whirlwind of media stuff behind this in the last week. Um, Obviously, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the 
absolutely terrible response from Scott Morrison, who uh, pretty much said that he needed to ask his wife, Jenny, um, to clarify what this meant. Uh, pretty much what he said in a press conference Wait, was... Who said that? This is ScoMo, okay. Scott Morrison. Um, he said that... Um, He spoke to his wife, Jenny, and she clarified to him how deeply problematic this issue was by relating it to what if it had been one of his daughters. And therefore he was like, and then I had (laughs) literally maybe a light bulb moment of, and then I realized how important it was, which is absolutely terrible knowing that, um, like the prime minister of Australia needs to have a female daughter to uh, be compassionate towards sexual assault uh, survivors. Um, So he clearly missed all of me too, really. That was pretty mainstream. Literally, yeah, definitely. Wow, Um, okay, this is what we're dealing with here. Yeah, but there's been a few inquiries. There's actually a fourth um, person has alleged the same man um, also sexual assaulted, se- sexually assaulted her. But I guess there's been a lot of talk about the cover-up, the, um, I guess, boys' club kind of environment that is Parliament House, which also was discussed in the Four Corners Inquiry last year, um, kind of bringing to light about how, you know, women uh, or sexual assault survivors don't have a voice and how they compromise their careers, uh, their mental health, um, their lives pretty much when this kind of stuff happens and no one else is really led accountable. Uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison says that he was not aware of it, but yeah, considering how many Liberal Party MPs knew about it, how there was rumours around Parliament House, kind of looks a bit sus, but yeah. Mm. Pretty, yeah, yeah. P- pretty terrible, like... Um, there was also on Radio National, um, I can't remember the MP that was being interviewed, but there was kind of uh, signalling towards uh, the fact that Brittany Higgins only came forward from pressure from her husband, who is a public servant, um, and that's the only reason why she came forward, not because of the fact that, um, you know, this is a really important story. Yeah. Um, but I think what primarily... Uh, made Britney come forward at this point was um, the Australian of the Year. I can't remember her name, um, but advocating for sexual uh, violence survivors to speak out. Um, Scott Morrison uh, congratulated her on her award. Grace Tame. Grace Tame. Yeah, that's right. Um, congratulated her on her award um, and all of her work done in terms of helping sexual assault survivors. Um, Brittany kind of obviously looked at that and said, don't really think that's where your compassion lies. Mm, a lot of tokenism there. Absolutely. Yeah, and we yeah. did also just see this morning that Brittany Higgins' partner has abandoned his Canberra job due to fears of payback. So yeah. did you see an update from early this morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that, yeah. Um, I just want to also jump in if anything that we've been discussing has brought up something for you. You can call the Sexual Assault Crisis Line on 1-800-806-292. That's 1-800-806-292. And 
just lastly, to finish off the news headlines, another huge, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, everything's just huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, Facebook has enacted a ban of all Australian news. Um, and this has come in response. I just so- want <laughs> can I jump in with my, my little oh, complaint? Yes. Before you actually get course. to the, the specifics and important parts. Yeah. Our Tuesday Breakfast Facebook page was not taken down. And I, I've got beef with this because mm-hmm. I feel like we are, I don't feel like I know we are, we are news. Yeah. We make news, we yeah. report on news, and we publish that news on our Facebook page. I'm not saying that I want to be taken down, yeah. but I, I reject the, the, the classification that we're outside of that news category. Definitely. Yeah. I think that like the algorithm, I'm not a tech person, so I don't know what, what they'd be doing to like um, uh, manage this, but I think the algorithm that they put on wiped a lot of um, news uh, platforms and stuff on Facebook and didn't wipe a lot of others. And, um, they were kind of like, Oh, this was a mistake by us. We're trying to fix it. And I think they reinstated some, but then forgot to reinstate others. Um, cause a lot of like, even like music news got wiped, like even satirical, ironic comedy news, like the Batuta advocate and the chasers got blocked. Um, that's so interesting. Which, like, and Bomb, yeah. Bureau of Meteorology. Yeah, that yeah, the that's the that was... like, We yeah. lose Bomb, we lose everything. Yeah, I think that's been reinstated. <laughs> yeah, that was like yeah. the main complaint. Everyone was like, Bomb's gone. <laughs> yeah. They reinstated that, but they haven't reinstated a lot of others. But yeah. for people that maybe don't know, I'm very surprised if you don't know, but um, news has been banned from Facebook in Australia. Uh, the social media giant steps up to fight against the federal government's proposed news media code. So pretty much over the last few months, the government has been putting together a news media code that would make Facebook pay, Facebook and Google, sorry, Facebook pay for news uh, that's shared or put on their site. This is pretty much um, making up for, I guess, the loss that news companies have had in advertising revenue because most of the advertising revenue is now on social media. Um, Obviously, Facebook has gone, no, absolutely not, and has just decided to ban news completely. There's like a few interesting um, takes on this. Obviously it's pretty, um, heartbreaking for independent media, small media, um, which pretty much has been wiped of Facebook, any foot traffic through Facebook, a lot of, Mm. um, small media get a lot of foot traffic through Facebook, through links and stuff like that. So that's pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Who's really going to lose out? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not really sure if it's going to dint that much in the news corp or, Fairfax Media, but um, I wanted to mention an interesting article that I read um, actually in Crikey, um, kind of doesn't issue a sort of opinion, but kind of talks about how the initial proposed tax by the government um, maybe was going to serve, you know, uh, Murdoch Media, uh, News Corp in general, because they would obviously have lost a lot. I mean, not the fact that they've ever paid tax, but um, they would have lost a lot of um, 
money to their sites, a lot of money in advertising, um, since the government, I think, heavily relies on News Corp for elections, saying really nice things about them. Um, there would have been – it kind of talks about there would have been a lot of pressure to make Facebook accountable and to make Facebook pay um, for using their news and articles. Um and it kind of thinks that, like, you know, would Scott Morrison's government ever have proposed something like this if it didn't rely so heavily on the media and mm. the, as they, as they put it, the murdocracy? <laughs> um, that makes a lot of sense, that point. Yeah. yeah, it's just an interesting point. And especially, I mean, this isn't even, like, I'm I'm not really sure if Scott Morrison was doing it for the independent... Um, News. Yeah. <laughs> Can't platform. imagine he would have been. Think yeah. of Crikey, you know, that's what he thought. When oh, he, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, I just think it's really important. Yeah, yeah no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so Facebook has said no, but they're, I think Google at the moment is filtering through actually discussing the deal and it means kind of I think what Facebook was really angry about it was they were like we don't have the control to make the deal the control is in the Australian government's hand and the control is in the news corporation's hand and Facebook kind of wanted a bit more autonomy to decide what to do or what um, what kind of deal would happen but Google I think is in the process of negotiating so Wow. <laughs> Facebook wants more power than the state, basically. Pretty well, they already have it. Yeah. Like what kind of what what more power would they yeah. possibly want? Like but I mean this really highlights global corp global corporations, how much they kind of can skip or dodge uh state legislations. Yeah. Um yeah, and yeah. how terrifying that is. Yeah, totally. And I reckon it's like the thing I've been talking about with friends in the last few days is that, you know, when the internet became a thing, it was about a democratized space. And without putting yeah. individual blame on on our, on people on people that use the internet, but we had this opportunity and we still have this opportunity, but we've but it's, it hasn't become that in any way yeah yeah and maybe it's a time now for us to really be thinking about you know do we really want to be using platforms like facebook definitely how can we, how can we move to other platforms where we can still have conversations but yeah in ways that aren't being run by these yeah. tech giants and i think that's the silver lining hopefully of this story is maybe we can move off um seeking news out from social media yeah. in general even though i mean it's a great way to spread news for sure yeah um but there's also a lot of misinformation there's a lot of echo chamber effect yeah. i think that happens in <laughs> yeah. the news yeah. uh, on social media yeah <laughs> yeah which maybe this i don't yeah, yeah. we'll see lots of questions things lots. for us to talk about in the next few weeks definitely should we do you have time for a track yeah, yeah, let's play a track. So I wanted to show this one from Acrosia. So they are a soul pop, um, I think she's a soul pop artist, a local artist, and this track is called Speechless. I really, I heard this last week and was very, very impressed. <laughs> Cherry pie 
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Ecosia with Speechless. I really love that track. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as well. We are going to go straight into an interview that Lauren did for us. So this interview is with Samantha Floriani, Campaigns Officer at Digital Rights Watch, and it is about her latest article, Why Digital Privacy is a Feminist Issue. I'm very, very keen to hear this. Uh, good morning. You are on 3CR Community Radio on Tuesday Breakfast with me, Lauren, and we're joined this morning by Samantha Floriani, who's the Campaigns Officer at Digital Rights Watch. Thanks for joining us, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so you wrote an awesome article that I've shared with all my friends and made everyone read. <laughs> but before we dive into it, um, I wanted to get some background for our listeners about the work that Digital Rights Watch actually does and that you do there. Yeah, awesome. So Digital Rights Watch is a digital rights advocacy organisation. <clears throat> Pardon me. So we stand up for fairness and freedoms and fundamental rights for all people in the digital world. And so that looks like a combination of policy work, writing submissions and, um, you know, uh, consultations with parliamentary inquiries and things like that, as well as building community and developing resources and sort of, you know, education and awareness raising around key issues. So those sorts of issues that we like to look at are things like privacy and security, you know, things like protecting encryption and pushing back against metadata retention, also issues around surveillance and the kinds of powers that law enforcement and intelligence agencies have, um, and, you know, things like human rights online and the role of digital platforms and, and the power dynamics between us uh, and our communities and technology. Mm. I do love that approach. You know, it's it's not just sort of... Um or maybe you and I don't think that digital stuff is dry. It is really interesting if you're into it, but you also, <laughs> I like the expansive view and how, you know, community and, and our lives interact with it. I think it's a really interesting part of the work you do. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I obviously I'm biased. I think that it's fascinating <laughs> and, and really important, but I can understand that there is this kind of um, assumption that it's a bit dull or a bit dry or, you know, just all, we're just reading privacy policies all day, um, <laughs> which would be a nightmare. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, I think we need to remember that these things have very significant impacts on on our day-to-day lives in real life, not just online. Mm. And so speaking of those impacts, there's been a lot, a lot of changes <laughs> to digital privacy policy and legislation and that sort of thing in the last few years kind of really springing, I guess the metadata legislation was this the first real like everyone saying, oh, my God, this is really important. Um, and that was, what, seven years ago now. Um, what are some more recent changes that you think people need to be aware of or that, that have raised concerns for Digital Rights Watch? Yeah, I mean, even in the last, like, three or four weeks, there have been some massive things happening in this space that people should be aware of. So I guess the first one is super hot topic at the moment, the fallout between Facebook and the Australian government over the news media bargaining code. Some people might not immediately see this as a digital rights issue, but when we're thinking about things like integrity and freedom of the press and, you know, how we think about power flows uh, online and between, you know, big tech corporations and big media organisations, that's definitely a, a digital rights issue. So that's that's something that's definitely... I think at the forefront of a lot of people's mm-hmm. minds, but also there are things like um, 
you know, so like that online safety bill is something that's happening at the moment, which um, is all about, you know, reducing harm for children and adults online, which is obviously a very important goal, but wrapped up in it are some, you know, provisions for powers around content moderation online. And so that's quite a challenging and complex area and stands to impact the way that uh, we all interact with with the internet, especially in terms of like, you know, being able to access adult content online and what it means to prevent and reduce harm for children without also, you know, creating harm for other minority groups. There are also things going on in the surveillance space. The identify and disrupt bill is happening at the moment as well, which would give law enforcement and intelligence agencies huge, huge powers uh, for surveillance. So that's a very big concern. (laughs) And then there's privacy reform happening in Australia at the moment, um, which is kind of where this whole article that I wrote came from. Mm. Um, and so it's a busy space. It's a really busy space. <laughs> it's just, yeah, every day I feel like there's something new. And it's almost, I think the commentary around the Facebook stuff has been so interesting in the last week because it's it's almost not taken serious. Like it's people in Australia, and I think it is so shocking. You woke up one morning and there was just no news, right? Like that's that's extraordinary. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I feel like people don't maybe, we don't know yet how to how to how to talk about that stuff with the gravity that it really has um, in our public spaces I, I, and the online safety bill, mm. the impact that that has, you know, I'm thinking of sex workers or of people who, who, yeah, do want to yeah. access adult content and those sorts of things. It's not, it's almost like we don't have a way of really discussing those issues, um, t- t- taking the impact of them seriously enough yet. I feel like. Yeah. yeah I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Mm. I think the Facebook thing in particular, like a lot of, my circles of friends being like, oh, who cares? Like I don't Mm. use Facebook. It doesn't impact me in my day-to-day life. And I think that we need to take a a sort of bigger perspective on Mm. that issue beyond like just how it impacts us as individuals. Like, sure, I can go to a news site directly, but all of the communities that got swept up in that, all of the, um, you know, other things beyond news that got swept up in that Mm. uh, block over the past few days, is a huge issue and then it, and then even beyond that like this is a this is a first like this sort mm. of lays the foundation for how governments and big tech uh interact which is i mean it's fascinating but it's also it's it's alarming yeah it's very dark but um, it's also easy to be like drama <laughs> and just to to laugh at the extraordinary you know some of the things that got blocked or the chaser you know pretending yeah. to be mark Zuckerberg, you know those things are great but yeah on the flip side um okay so sometimes you have to laugh though look we do Tuesday breakfast motto um so your article um is about digital privacy and why it's a feminist issue or why it's why it needs to be um talked about for feminism it's so important I wondered if maybe you could start with just a bit of a what is the central thesis of it um in a nutshell yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. so essentially like at the crux of it is this idea that you know, feminism is inherently concerned with power and power structures, who has it, who doesn't have it, et cetera. And then privacy is all about information flows. Who knows what about who, what can be done with that information. Um, And so we live in a data-driven world. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's an exaggeration. You know, uh, everything we do is, is, 
is kind of interfaced with some form of technology, some form of data collection. Um, and so those who amass data and hold in turn hold immense amounts of power. And so that means that the existing power imbalances between us and our communities and individuals and, you know, governments and uh, corporations and companies, that those imbalances grow larger as as those um, as they immense more uh, sorry as they amass more information about us mm. and so we see it in thing in it come out into play with misuse of people's information in all kinds of spaces so that might be you know increasing surveillance which in turn uh, harms minority groups when it comes to policing. We also see it in things like, you know, the misapplication of automated systems, which then turn into things like robo debt, for example, mm. which a lot of people might not see as a privacy issue, but that was fundamentally an issue of how information was used and collected and used about people and then put into an automated system. So I think it's absolutely a privacy issue. Mm. Um, and we see it in things like, you know, manipulation of democratic processes uh, through scandals such as Cam- Cambridge Analytica. So essentially the, the crux of it is that both of these things grapple with power and privacy is about, you know, how can we take some of that power back, put it back into the hands of individuals and communities, which, you know, is... <laughs> also a very feminist ideal so I think there's mm. lots of there's lots of parallels there mm. and that that notion of power and community and that sort of thing I, something that really struck me um and you bring it up specifically in your your article but then also it's sort of a theme the idea of community and space and personal and um and public and you know that's such a a strong issue in feminism obviously the collapse of the public private sphere and and things like violence in the home or, or private issues in the home that were considered domestic and therefore not mm. society's problem and, you, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, I'm interested in, in, in what you think about the way that the internet has then sort of collapsed that um, and do we need to redefine in some way our private versus public space? And if so, I guess how how do we do that without kind of... <laughs> pulling back some of the gains we've made, I guess, in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is, a, it is a tricky space. It is, is a mm. complex issue. Um, and there are certainly some people out there that would make the argument that increasing privacy allows for more places for people to hide bad behavior. Mm. Um, I don't subscribe to that kind of thinking. I think that, you know, the kinds of ideas of privacy that, I think are really important are things like dignity and autonomy and consent and choice and things like that, which um, are also would then in turn be really important. Say, say the example that you brought up with uh, family violence, mm. we need strong privacy protections and security um, you know, uh, abilities for digital security to be able to protect, to protect Mm. victim survivors of, of family violence. So that's a really important area. You know, it can't just be about keeping things secret for bad things, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it's funny because, you know, some people, <laughs> some people, or, or when you, you watch TV or, or read um, sci-fi novels, it'll be like, well, we'll just open up everything. If everything's on display, then no one will do anything bad because it's always on display. Mm. But this is such a huge, I think, uh, 
misunderstanding of of how that would impact things like our ability to question power and to hold mm-hmm. people accountable because that kind of level of, of visibility and of surveillance in turn you know fosters uh self-censorship self-policing mm-hmm. you know encourage us to con- encourages us to conform and all of these things don't exactly add up to like a thriving society where people can you know be themselves and be accepted for who they are so that was kind of a very wobbly mishmashed answer but it was a very wobbly question it's a really (laughs) difficult concept to grapple with and I think I think that's so you're so right because it really ties into I mean we know that feminism is hand in hand with anti-capitalism um you know in any sort of western country and and with sort of the push against this growing totalitarian mm. government idea that's sort of sweeping the yeah. world. Um, and I think you're right and, and about it increases vulnerability when that those privacy protections are, protections are stripped away. Um, yeah. And particularly for people like women who are in those marginalised groups. And and you're right yeah. that, yeah, sorry, thinking out loud, that wasn't really a question. No, <laughs> the, the other thing, I guess, like bringing up capitalism, that's a really good point, like, so we operate at the moment under a system of surveillance capitalism, you know, this monetizing of our data. And so pr- protecting privacy is a direct way to push back against that system. And mm. so that's a that's a very feminist agenda, it, mm. in my opinion, you know, pushing back against the, the power structures that seek to monetize our very being, our very existence online. That's super feminist. Yeah. That's radical as hell. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you've just sold all of 3CR's listeners on that. <laughs> uh, that's good. I mean, the reason I kind of wrote the the piece mm. itself is because, you know, I have a lot of feminist friends and I think often we would have these discussions and they'd be like, why? Why privacy? Like, this is such a dull area. I'm like, no, it's not. It's like... <laughs> it's yeah. really radical. It's really important. <laughs> Listen to me, please. <laughs> So when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about, um, I know this is, it's a bit pop culture I guess, but, you know, when I think about digital privacy and the internet and feminism, I really think about the rise of feminist influences, I guess. And, and it's mm-hmm. very, it's, you know, it's a very specific area of um, internet use, but it really has opened up so much space for women and non-binary people really to, to be open about their bodies and their experiences and their gender and, um, and have safe spaces to talk about these things or to see themselves reflected in, in famous people for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Like representation um, and, you know, identity politics is maybe not your jam, but I think it's undeniable that it has been really important in some way to a lot of young women particularly. Um, yep. I'm wondering, is there a, do you see benefit in us putting our lives online in this way? Um, obviously, digital privacy is protecting yourself when putting your lives online, but w- what do you think? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I love the internet. I mean, I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with the internet, yes. really. <laughs> um, but one of the sort of like initial like beautiful ideas about the internet was that we were able to find and connect with others who share similar worldviews or expand our worldviews all from the comfort of of your own home. Like you never Mm. have to leave your couch and you can expand um, how you see things. So that's pretty phenomenal. And I feel like that's something that I really try to hold on to when thinking about the internet and social media because Mm. it's easy to see 
like it's easy to sort of get overwhelmed by all of the negative things but this is a really good question because it's it's important to see how that how they're actually really powerful as well so you know i think that there's immense benefit for being able to to see um how people are living their lives and and the influences like you mentioned the feminist influences that are online are doing some amazing work and they do have a lot of power in shaping how a lot of people think about these issues so i think that that's i think that's really really cool and in terms of visibility and representation again you know mm. while it would be great for mainstream media to catch up on this in the interim it is amazing that i can open up instagram and you know have a little sneak peek into the lives of sex workers into the lives of people who who are different to me you know get a little dash of body positivity in the morning or um you know all, all kinds of stuff so i mean i think that's really great but i think on the flip side um we also need to be careful not to conflate social media with like real change and real action and and true equality um which i think sometimes it can create that kind of illusion mm. um from a privacy perspective I don't think there's anything wrong with posting things online as long as people are thinking about it. I mean, I'm on social media um, and I I enjoy it and I post, sometimes I post things about my life and sometimes I'm like, baby, I'll keep that private. I, I think as long as people are thinking about it critically, mm. then it's fine. Yeah. Which leads me into my last question for feminists, organisers who are listening. Um, <laughs> how can they how can we use the internet? How can we be online um, and, and use it for the things that we want to use it for, but really maintain that digital privacy and keep ourselves safe? Or can we not? I think we still can, but <laughs> just. I have, to, I have to believe that we still can. Otherwise yes. I'll just curl, like, curl up into a ball yeah. in a dark room. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't think it's too far gone, but I think that we do need to be paying more attention to our privacy and to our security and being more mindful of it. But that, I mean, that's not to say that I think that the burden of responsibility should fall solely onto individuals. We, I think we really need to remember that the entire system of surveillance capitalism that we operate under has been set up to facilitate data extraction, you know, to invade our privacy, to be able to monetize us online um, through advertising mechanisms and whatnot. So, you know, similarly to thinking that you can fix environmental issues by not using straws it would be ridiculous for us to think that we can fix surveillance capitalism just by changing our privacy settings you know Mm. that's not to say those steps aren't important but we need you can't lose sight of like the bigger the bigger issues um so yeah (laughs) that's my disclaimer just like i think it's important to fix this guys yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but we also need to like look after ourselves and look after our communities. So I make the point in this piece about how I think protecting privacy is a really important act of community care and for looking out for each other and carving out a space where we can connect and organize um, and share information and resources and things. And so, you know, some practical steps that that might look like are things like not relying solely on these big tech platforms. If you are only using Facebook or Instagram to connect with community and share ideas and and organize, then you are subject to the whims of those platforms. Mm -hmm. As we've seen last week, they can pull the rug from under you at any point. Um, So, you know, making sure that we are using different 
also like we you know we don't want to support we don't necessarily want to support those um mm. those platforms and their agenda so finding finding other uh other ways to organize online is really important you know then there are other things like um making smart choices about how you use social media you know changing privacy settings are important um and then other things like using firefox as your browser which is open source and one of the better browsers for privacy Mm. Uh, installing plugins like privacy badger which help to stop you from being traced around the internet um, using a password manager and setting up two-factor authentication, learning about VPNs. Like these things sound a bit, uh, they can sound a bit like boring life admin sort of techie things, but they are fundamental when it mm. comes to protecting ourselves online, especially if you are a feminist or an activist or an organiser, if you're, you know, if you're doing anything in the in the realm of environmental activism or anything mm. like that, we need to be taking this seriously because history has shown that we are much more likely to be targeted. So putting up those extra barriers around ourselves in our community is really important. Mm. And I can vouch for it. It is very quick. I got a VPN in a very short amount of time, guys, and I am not a tech genius. So (laughs) if I can do it, you can all do it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I think it just sounds a bit daunting, but yeah, you're so right. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. That was fantastic. Um, Everybody, please go and look up this piece. It's in Overland Journal. It's by Samantha Floriani, the Campaigns Officer at Digital Rights Watch. Thank you again. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was a phenomenal interview. Thank you, Lauren, if you're listening. And thank you also to Samantha Floriani for that discussion about why digital privacy is a feminist issue. I was just so many things I was thinking about as I was listening to yeah. that, but I love the comparison to straws yeah. and the sort of the, the way we individualize an issue that is so much bigger than that. Um, but also the, the sentiment around protecting privacy being an act of community care. I thought that was a really nice. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I think um, the internet being so broad, it's hard to kind of pinpoint any sort of care or any sort of, I guess, personal responsibility to it. But um, even like uh, what Samantha said about the Firefox. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. that, yeah. that was, <laughs> I was <laughs> writing it down. VPN, I don't know. Yeah. Do some <laughs> Google no, no Firefox. <laughs> um, totally, yeah. I think we've all learned a lot. Mm. I'm excited to actually go and implement some of yeah. those <laughs> techniques. So we're going to play a song now. This is one of my favourite tracks at the moment. This one is by Kosha and it's called Berlin Air.
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Kevin Hines Grow delivers gardening programs to people of all ages and abilities. Kevin Hines Grow is now running free social gardening sessions for refugees and asylum seekers in Coburg. Learn how to grow vegetables and herbs, care for plants and meet other people. Free lunch provided each week. Sessions start on the 25th of February and will run weekly on Thursdays from 10am. Open to refugees and asylum seekers. For more information, visit kevinhinesgrow.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world, this year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture, and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th, online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1800 729 367. That's 1800 729 367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast uh, on 3CR Community Radio. The time is 7.52. We've got a very special guest on the show today. Um, His name is Mac Zamani. Uh, he's a trans 17-year-old living in Melbourne, currently doing VC at TAFE and also pursuing some roles in the advocacy section, especially in regards to disability, but uh, slowly broadening himself to do more around LGBTQIA plus issues. He is on the show to discuss his experience as a young trans person and also his involvement in the recent national report that was conducted by the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University called uh, Writing Themselves In For, and he was a study participant. Hello, Mac. Are you there? Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me this morning. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much for joining us. And just to start off, Mac, uh, would you be, just for our audience that isn't familiar with you, would you be able to introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe your experience uh, as a young trans person. Yeah, sure. So, uh, hi everyone, I'm Mac. I'm 17 and I use he, him pronouns. So I came out quite young at the age of 12, so I'm 17 now. 
Um, so I've been fully out and living my life as male for five years now. Um, and it's been mostly pretty good. I'm very lucky to have a beautiful, supportive family. Um, and yeah, I, in my spare time, I definitely get involved in the advocacy field. It's a very new thing of mine and I find it very, very rewarding, um, especially when we have looks at their reports, such as writing themselves in for, and you see those statistics and you know that the work you're doing is helping to change and it's really um, beautiful and impactful. Yeah. yeah, that's a little about me. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I wanted to maybe go a bit deeper into uh, your role in the advocacy section. What kind of work do you do um, in the advocacy section and I guess what kind of work would you hope to do? Yeah, so I currently like to refer to myself as an advisor for organisations on diversity um, just because advocacy is such a huge term and it encompasses so much. Um, so I do a lot of work with organisations that are putting out requests to get a more of a diverse perspective and make sure whatever they're doing, such as an event or a program or resources and worksheets that are inclusive to everybody, um, which just allows for more people to access them. Um, I am slowly, you know, trying different little things. Um, I'm definitely saying I'm loving having chats with people on the radio. I think that's something I really love doing. Um, But really, I just any opportunity that comes my way to have a chat about people um, and make an impact to them and whatever they're doing, I just get on board with. Yeah. And I love how you redefined uh, your role as an advocacy section. I reckon that's really cool. And I mean, what you're doing sounds absolutely incredible. Um, Just a little one more I think, person about you, Mac, just before we get, uh, sorry, person, question about you, Mac, just before we get into the study, um, just about your experience as a young trans person, do you feel that, I mean, you've said that you have been well supported by your family. Um, do you feel like you've been well supported in the community? And do you think there's any facets in the community that you think could be improved or you think that are going really well? That's a great question. Yeah, I would Love to say that my um, beautiful family support extends to the greater community, but sadly, that's not really the case. So while, yes, I do live in a metropolitan Melbourne, which is generally perceived as much more progressive, I live on more of the outskirts. um, And something um, that we talk about is the the further kilometres you move from the inner city, the less... um, I think where I live, we suggest that it's three years behind um, compared to the city. So lots of the wider community's viewpoint are quite negative. Um, there, obviously, there's some few great little organisations like Headspace um, that you can get great support with. But when you just general interactions with the day-to-day people that you see, it's sadly not as great as it could be. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, your point about the metropolitan Melbourne bubble, I guess, of progressive um, views is something that we tend to forget being in Melbourne, um, you know, and obviously I think there's more shock value than when you hear about 
the fact that these views aren't reciprocated even in just the inner suburbs or outer suburbs of Melbourne. So I think it's really important to remember that for sure. Yeah, people seem to forget how really small that progressive bubble really is when you look at the, how big our whole state is. Yeah. Um, it's actually the minority, not the majority of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, moving on to the study, we interviewed Izzy, who's also a case participant in the study a couple of weeks ago. Um, but maybe for people that didn't hear that interview or maybe people that just aren't aware, could you tell us a little bit about what the national report um, was that was conducted by Latrobe in a university um, and how you came to be involved? Yeah, sure. So the writing themselves in for was um, it's an annual survey that is done every, I think it's four to six years. Um, and it's done, it's been done since the 1980s or so. So it's been, go- it's a new thing, but it's been going on a while. But this year's was the largest ever national survey of health and well-being of lesbians, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, and asexual identifying young people aged 14 to 21. So it provides vital information across numerous life domains to assist health professionals, educators, community organisations and government to better understand the health and well-being of LGBTQA plus young people in Australia. So it was conducted by the Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe Uni. And it was supported by Rainbow Health Victoria. Um, and it was funded by the government. So practically the survey included a bunch of questions um, covering so many diverse topics that young LGBT young people face. So just experiences of coming out and disclosing sexual and gender identity, experiences in school, experiences of mental ill health and harassment and community connection. So it was to give this really holistic perspective of what young people are struggling with and what are doing well to better get an idea on how to improve them. So me personally, I mean, the study was done back in 2019, um, but I am pretty sure I found out about the survey and completed it through word of mouth, um, which was how it got across through most communities. Um, just there were lots of ads posted on Instagram and social media and lots of people accessed it through that. Some of the organisations provided the links in emails to young people, um, but I can't remember the exact way that I got involved. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think – I wouldn't put any pressure on you to remember the exact way, but, um, I mean, yeah, as you said, the – largest study done in Australia about um, the queer and LGBTQIA plus community. Um, So really important study, obviously really important report that came out. Do you remember maybe off the top of your head, I wouldn't expect you to, (laughs) but um, some of the findings that came out of the report or some of the findings that really stuck in your mind? Yeah, um, definitely. So I think um, for me personally, that I just moved from TAFE to high school. So one of the big statistics that I found really interesting was um, that 60.2% of participants reported feeling unsafe and uncomfortable in secondary school due to their sexuality or gender identity. 
compared to people who go to TAFE, where that percentage was much lower at 33.8%, um, which I thought that was really impactful for me because the second I moved to TAFE, there was a complete different culture change. Yeah. Um, so it was really impactful to see that that's a very generalised experience. Yeah. Um, I think one that really hit close to me was that one in almost one quarter of young people had experienced one or more forms of homelessness in their lifetime, and 11% have experienced that within the last 12 months. So in that was purely in relationship to family rejecting them because of their identity. Yeah. So there were lots of not great like statistics, but it's not surprising when you really have a look at the experiences that our community goes through. Yeah, for sure. Really interesting what about the TAFE and the high school stuff, because I think it's something that Izzy reiterated um, when they came on for an interview um, about how TAFE was more accepting and it was a bit more comfortable to go there than high school. Um, that's really interesting. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realise that that would be the case. Yeah, me neither. I just thought it was a personal experience. Um but lots of people, it can really come down to the cultures a lot different. It's a adult setting, um, and so LGBT issues are seen as an adult conversation. It's really not. So it is allowed to be talked about a lot more openly and comfortably because of that different environment. Um, and as well as something I've found is Lots of LGBT young people due to experience in high school feel unsafe, so they move to TAFE. So I think that also has a lot to do with um, the type of people that are going into these spaces, which just as a result makes it more safe and comfortable for others over time. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm just conscious of the time because, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Just a couple more questions. Um, personally, uh, why do you think studies like um, writing themselves in four um, are important. I mean, it's obviously important, but why do you think it's important? Oh, yeah, that's so important. I think um, the biggest impact is it really allows the wider understand, the wider society to understand what's happening within our community. Like, we'll tell you, you know, about the high risks of physical harassment, verbal harassment and physical assault that people experience. But like, when there's actual research done from an outsider's perspective, it really gives that perspective to everyone to show these issues. Something um, myself and a lot of my peers have found that after gay marriage was legalised, lots of people came to the conclusion that um, LGBT issues were done. We have full equality. Mm. So these reports are really important to emphasise that there's still work that needs to get done and it's also a way for the government to um, be able to get involved because these researches are what leads the way for more programs and more money and more funding to help improve these outcomes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And also a voice for young, I think, LGBTQIA plus people is so important right now. Definitely. And the anonymous anonymousness that this report has it allows the young people to be able to share their story and their perspective and get their voice heard without the fear of 
negative backlash as a result of sharing their perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just as a finishing note, Mac, uh, for anyone that may be interested in supporting young queer people, um, do you have any recommendations of sites or social medias or information platforms or any advice that you wish you knew, uh, people knew for you personally? Definitely. I think my biggest one for people who actually interact with LGBT young people is look into organisations that specify events that are inclusive. So say Minus 18, that's a beautiful organisation that I 100% recommend um, referring any of your LGBT young people to get involved with. And your local headspaces, they all run beautiful, most of them run um, LGBT support groups. And um, I think just getting yourself more exposed to creators and influencers who are LGBT because it's often seen as um, this community that exists in theory but not in real life. So I think getting yourself involved and following as much people as you can really allows you to better understand the community and therefore better support the people in your life. Yeah, definitely. Oh, thank you so much, Mac, uh, for joining us. We're also really big fans of Minus 18, by the way. Um, and it sounds like you're doing incredible things. Um, and I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Mac Zamani, who's a 17-year-old young trans person living in Melbourne, just talking about his experience as a trans person and his involvement in the La Trobe University study called Writing Themselves in Four. This is Baby Rose with In Your Arms. If I go slow, looking around, 
Listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Baby Rose with In Your Arms. Beautiful track there. Yeah, such a nice track. Um, now it's ten past eight. Um, I'm going to do another live interview with a very special guest. I'm so excited to be talking to her this morning. Um, her name's Robert Joy Rich. Uh, she's a multidisciplinary artist uh, whose work mainly explores concepts of identity and history, often re- referencing her own diaspora uh, from Southern Africa um, and experiences. Um to reframe and reclaim representations of African identity, community, and their stories. Um, She completed her MFA at Monash University and has exhibited widely in Australia and South Africa. Just some of her recent exhibitions have been um, in the Black Dog Gallery in Melbourne, um, the Wits Art Museum in Johannesburg, so, so many more, the Gallery Momo in Cape Town, Um, And she's on the show just to have a chat about her work, um, what inspires her work uh, and what she's doing um, at the moment. So hello, Roberta. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks, Genevieve. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. I'm calling in from a kind of sunny morning on Wunurong and Wurundjeri country near the Maribyrnong. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I'm not sure. I haven't been outside at the moment. <laughs> when I came to the studio, it was looking pretty glum. So I'm glad it's sunny somewhere. Yeah, the glum's kind of going now. The oh, blue's trying to come through. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to start us off a bit, um, just to mm-hmm. tell our audience a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, when did you start creating and was there, do you think, any catalyst moment that told you this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, um, I guess I've been making art, it feels weird saying this for the last 10 years or so, I kind of, I grew up um, in Wuthering Country, more commonly known as Geelong, and I guess my idea of making art when I was living there was very much how good you could draw or technical skill, and so I kind of was quite naive and just went straight into art school, and then seven years of art school, um, my thinking very much changed. But, yeah, I guess art for me is 
very much become a kind of like visual diary of sorts, but also um, my own kind of journey into trying to understand identity and this world that we live in and having like wider conversations also with community about some of the problems that exist within that as well. So, and funnily enough, of course, in the institution, only right at the end of my kind of study within the institution that I actually harnessed where I want to be making art about and what that looks like. Um, and I guess, you know, a lot of the tutors or whatnot weren't necessarily culturally competent to mm. harness the things that I was interested in or connect with me. So, yeah, a lot of my work has been looking at questions of African identity and what does this look like and growing up in a very kind of white-saturated environment, um, I was constantly questioned as well about, you know, I feel like the um, First Nations and pop community, there's always that where you're from kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> but, like... I, yeah, I feel like with this, there was kind of a more complex thing happening as well because, yeah, I am quite light-skinned and navigating also through my art the privileges that come with that as well, but understanding various ideas of blackness within that because, yeah, I guess the environment I was in couldn't understand, yeah, um, a family of different varying visualities could all be black. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of my art kind of, Look, these ideas and early in my, I guess when I finished being at the institution, I was overwhelmed and also just trying to like navigate the art space in NAM. But about, yeah, an odd 10 years ago or so, NAM wasn't, I mean, there were things happening, but I think when I finished, like Richard Bell was only having his first major solo show in um, uh, Melbourne. Um, so a lot has kind of changed since then, but I just felt a bit disenfranchised as well. So, And to understand some of the questions I still had, I um, spent a lot of time kind of back and forth from um, Johannesburg and Cape Town in South Africa, connecting yeah. with community and family and just trying to understand more about this kind of in-between space or place that I occupy. Yeah. Yeah, obviously... Um you touched on it a little bit then about how story, identity, um, history is really important in fueling um, your work. Um, it would be lovely to hear unpack a little bit of your development process. Uh, how do you begin a piece? Is it fueled by the message or the discipline uh, or even a blend of both? Um, it's kind of a blend of both, but I think it's, it's very oral heavy. Like often through just having many, many conversations with peers or with um, older aunties and uncles and hearing stories and certain stories will inspire particular emotions and then I want to like respond to it or make a piece about it or other stories might make me really like angry and frustrated and they might not necessarily come from within friends or family, but rather the wider kind of media. Um, so, for example, um, a work that I was working on a couple of 2017 to 18, um, Remembering District 6, that was very much inspired by and driven by my family and listening 
to their stories and when I was going back um, to South Africa. I mean, I was raised here, so trying to also understand the histories of why I exist here and hearing about forced removals and Group Areas Act and literally a whole um, inner-city suburb being demolished because it was a threat to the, I guess, Dutch Africana National Government at the time. And so I feel really privileged that I happened to be there at the um, 50th anniversary of the um, at least 60,000 you know, forced goodbyes. So, um, yeah, I marched within that, those commemorative marches with my aunties and with friends and, yeah, like... It was just really beautiful listening to, like, the memories but also the fire that's still very much in people fighting to move back into this space because now where it's at, and, I mean, South Africa right now, it's, I don't know if these things are probably halted. It's not necessarily doing great with COVID, but um, there's actually been rebuilding and people being able to move back onto the land, which is really awesome. But that has its own complications, of course. But, yeah, that work is very much inspired by stories um, and just, like, through talking heaps with family. Um, whereas, yeah, there's kind of other older works that I have that that are more responses to just feeling, like, resigned or some of my humour can be a bit satirical or blunt. Um, no, I, I, I love it. No, <laughs> even... Um, <laughs> Um, I looked at the piece of yours that was about District 6 and it actually provoked me to look into District 6. I didn't know much about it at all, so mm. it's really impactful. Um, I wanted to delve a bit more into um, your work, especially um, how it goes into your experience of South African diaspora uh, and some of your work also centres around your um, – centres around, sorry, apartheid and African identity in general uh, – why do you think it's important for you to explore this history in your art? Mm. Well, I just, I feel like I have an accountability. I mean, you know, I've all these kind of incessant and strange questions that I kept receiving and then through learning more or trying to understand more about my place here and such, it was strikingly obvious to me that these segregation histories parallel with the ongoing atrocities and genocide that's happening here in the settler nation Australia context. And so for me, it's also about paralleling, like, or trying to facilitate these conversations within circles more. I mean, I was listening before when Mac was saying the bubble of NAM, like, sometimes, yeah, like, it's very much Mm. that bubble. And, you know, understanding that once we kind of exit that bubble, these, the thinking of, you know, towards First Nations and um, people globally, like these really reductive ideas that have been informed by these segregation policies. And I think even the Australian government and South African governments at the time would have definitely been in conversations and um, like the Queensland um, Aborigines Protection Act, it seems to me, and I think... Um, perhaps Maxine Benabar Clark has written about this, but very much a blueprint for like apartheid South African government segregation politics. So for me, yeah, it was just like once I'd kind of unearthed or 
learned more about these histories and realised the direct parallels that were happening here. Obviously, they're both very different contexts, but the similar practices, white supremacy, yeah, it just made sense to me to talk about it in my work more. Yeah, definitely. And um, a particular piece that I loved, which I actually saw in a series that you put forward um, for the Cordite Poetry Review, which maybe you can um, explain to our audience as well. Um, But it was the um, typography with deny, denial, denied, um, and then Um, coloured TM um, over the top. Yeah, and the statistics about immigration views and the growth rates of different racial groups in South Africa I'd love it if you could unpack that piece for our audience um, and even what the Cordite Poetry Review was, which is where it was showcased, which is where I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those prints, um, and I think that particular work that you're speaking of, 98 Denials and 77, so, yeah, it's very much um, layers of text. Um, and the first layer are there. It's part of a series of works. I think there's about eight, and they're abstracts from the South African um, Race Relations Survey, which was put out, I think, every year by the South African Institute for Race Relations, who, with this kind of strange body that was just recording things that, and current affairs that was happening at the time, which is, I guess, really great for archival purposes. But I was really interested in the, so the text that I've first laid is, it speaks to all these different views on immigration and then it shows, like, the segregation and statistics. But in particular, I'm really interested in the um, numbers of people who during this time went into... So you could go into Home Affairs, I guess it's kind of like Centrelink or a government office, and you could um, change your racial classification during the struggle. So if you were of the um, aligning shade or hair like they had this pencil test where you like we have a pencil put in your hair and depending if it stayed or not would determine your level of blackness or coloredness or yeah it's pretty wild so I was really interested in this though because very much when I was making those works I was really interested in because a lot of the conversations I was having with family and friends um within um brown and black Southern African communities was it's it's very much obsessed with the physical and um, physical ideas of identity. Not everybody, but there's a very strong because it's been embedded in generations. And rather than thinking about cultural identity that may not it's not always affiliated with your visual representation. So I was thinking about denial in terms of and so yeah, on top of that text layer, sorry, are the repeated words deny, denial, denied, um, and then in red like a kind of stamp coloured TM. So, yeah, um, I was really interested in denial in terms of history and what which communities have been denied, but also this question of what are we denying here? Are we denying our proximity to blackness, whiteness? So I wanted to ask those questions within those um, print works. And, yeah, the coloured TM is, like, also... Acknowledging the direct language, so my family were classed as colours, and it's also like, what does that even mean? Mm. <laughs> it's just so, such a lazy, like, but at the same time, it's it's such a 
it's a term that's strangely become neutralised, but nowhere else in the globe. So you have people in the community that will refer to themselves in this way, and it's not seen as a derogatory thing. But, yeah, I wanted to have the coloured team as a way of kind of recognising this is a term that's been branded upon us, and it's an oppressive term, but to take back that language and reframe it. But, yeah, so these works are shown as part of the new issue of um, Cordat Poetry Review, edited by an amazing Tongan um, writer, Winnie Dunn, who's put together um, 56 new written pieces by amazing First Nations writers from across the globe. And so I have 13 artworks, and the one I just described is part of um, the new issue. So I guess, yeah, a, a kind of visual diary for the writing that's taking place. Um, so I feel really privileged to be a part of that. And, yeah, the, the, the image that's on the cover of Cordite, or when you look at the journal, it's a collage work um, from 2018 called I See You, Seeing Me. Um, so in the collage, we see this kind of wooden um, box, like a stage, and there's silhouettes of people um, sitting at the front, uh, like a crowd, say. And then there's a lot of fashion models, predominantly, or most of them are white, um, just standing kind of stark in various um, winter-like outfits. And in the background are um, eyes taken from different images of black faces that are looking directly at us. So... The, yeah, the idea was kind of this really stark and this series was quite blunt with the humour, but, yeah, acknowledging, like, I see you seeing me, like, yeah. I see when you tokenise me or fetish me or and these things. It was, the whole series was for a runway journal issue called Spectacle, so I was really interested in these ideas of how black bodies are made the spectacle and what that looks like. And yeah. Yeah, so this is part of the um, new quarter issue that's out. Yeah, I'd love, we're, I would love to put the link on our website as well. And I'm just wary of the time, Roberta. I feel like I had so many questions to ask you, but you're such a brilliant speaker. Um, is there, do you want to just uh, tell our audience, is there anything else exciting you're working on and where the audience can access your work, um, if there's any websites or anything? Sure. Um, I'm working on a few things at the moment. I know I love the chat, so I'll try and be really quick. I'm um, creating a new, well, I'm still very much in the research phase, but a new work that'll be part of Footscray Community Arts Centre in partnership with ACCA for their Who's Afraid of Public Space exhibition. So responding to that theme of Who's Afraid of Public Space, so I'm very much thinking about power and access in my thinking about this work um, and I'm also working on a really exciting project with a friend and collaborator Naomi Philippi um, looking at Southern African um, female heroines and their history um, that is hopefully due to be exhibited in Arts House next year. So a lot of things I'm working on right now for like 2022 which seems wild to even say that is you know, yeah. where we'll be. But, yeah, more of my work, people can check it out on my website. That's robertajoyrich.com. Um, and, yeah, there's heaps of images and other links there too. 
Yeah, awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely put a link on our website. Uh, thank you so much for chatting to us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Roberta. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. What a show. Thanks to all of our incredible guests. We had Samantha Flor- Floriani, Mark Samani, and Roberta Joe Rich. Stay tuned. Giselle has an amazing show planned for you on Accent to Women about the Indian farm protests and tune in to Wednesday Breakfast tomorrow. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.